I'm Scott. Hello, I'm Julie. And this is a Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Where two Catholic friends talk about the books and movies they love and the traces of the one reality that lie below the surface. Oh, yeah. And this is Flannery Cast 2023. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I can't remember how many Flannery podcasts we've done, but uh, in this one, we're going to do a little bit different. And the other ones we've talked about are short stories. And um, in this one, we thought we'd look at some of her letters, which are fantastic. They're collected in a book called The Habit of Being. And um, I've picked three, and Julie has picked three, and we thought we'd uh, visit those, those six and, and talk about them. Does that sound like a plan? Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I, was just, I was just letting your words soak in. Oh, excellent, excellent. All right. <laughs> So Flannery O'Connor, um, just to put her in historical context, she was born in 1925, March 25th, and mm. she passed away on August 3rd, 1964. So, um, yeah, so these letters, you know, we're going to start in 1955. Yeah, and the collection is with all kinds of people. Some of them are people who were friends who were also writers, some of them are things like her writing to a publisher going, well, if we can't do it like this, I might have to find a different publisher. Yeah. And um, then some of them are people who wrote to her. Right. Uh, asking about her Catholicism or her writing techniques. And some of them you'll see repeating letters through the years. Some will drop off. It's, it's really interesting because when you're doing it, if you just read a letter or two a night, you really have, by the end of the book, a good sense of who she was as a person, and I'm very fond of her. Yeah, me too. Me too, and I am fond of her stories. Oh, yeah. They can be difficult, but they're something else. <laughs> well, and the nice thing about these is because you're seeing the person behind the story. She sometimes will talk about those, but a lot of times she's just talking about, you know, her peacocks or her mother or, um, you know, writing or whatever. Mm. But she's being a regular person, and so you get to see her sense of humor, her intelligence, the way she felt sometimes about living in the South, all the things about her. And it's a look that you wouldn't get any other way than through all these letters. So yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's really worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely worthwhile. Really love them. So yeah, so we're going to start with uh, a letter that was written on the 28th of August, 1955, to um, just the letter A. <laughs> so there was a, a person named A who came forward and gave a bunch of letters to the editor of this book and um, just said, just list me as A. So we don't know for sure who A is. Do you know who A is? No. I was just wondering if maybe it came out but or I something. Will, yeah, yeah, I will say I never bothered to. Yeah, look and I never did either. Up. So yeah. um, so this is just to A. Okay. <clears throat> so I thought we'd, we'd read it and then talk about it. All right. So here it is. I wish St. Thomas were handy to consult about this fascist business. Of course, this word doesn't really exist uncapitalized, so in making it that way, you have the advantage of using a word with a private meaning and a public odor, which you must not do. But if it does mean a doubt of the efficacy of love, and if this is to be observed in my fiction, then it has to be explained, or partly explained, by what happens to conviction— 
I believe love to be efficacious in the long run. When it is translated into fiction, designed for a public with a predisposition to believe the opposite. This, along with the limitations of the writer, could account for the negative appearance. But find another word than fascist, for me and St. Thomas too. And totalitarian won't do either. Both St. Thomas and St. John of the Cross, dissimilar as they were, were entirely united by the same belief. The more I read St. Thomas, the more flexible he appears to me. Incidentally, St. John would have been able to sit down with the prostitute and say, Daughter, let us consider this. But St. Thomas doubtless knew his own nature and knew that he had to get rid of her with a poker or she would have overcome him. I am not only for St. Thomas here, but I am in accord with his use of the poker. I call this being tolerantly realistic, not being a fascist. Another reason for the negative appearance, if you live today, you breathe in nihilism. In or out of the church, it's the gas you breathe. If I hadn't had the church to fight it with or to tell me the necessity of fighting it, I would be the stinkingest logical positivist you ever saw right now. With such a current to write against, the result almost has to be negative. It does well just to be. Then another thing. What one has as a born Catholic is something given and accepted before it is experienced. I am only slowly coming to experience things that I have all along accepted. I suppose the fullest writing comes from what has been accepted and experienced both, and that I have just not got that far yet all the time. Conviction without experience makes for harshness. And then I'm going to skip a paragraph or two here. Which brings me to the embarrassing subject of what I have not read and been influenced by. I hope nobody ever asks me in public. If so, I intend to look dark and mutter, Henry James, Henry James, which will be the veriest lie, but no matter. I have not been influenced by the best people. The only good things I read when I was a child were the Greek and Roman myths, which I got out of a set of child's encyclopedia called The Book of Knowledge. The rest of what I read was slop with a capital S. The slop period was followed by the Edgar Allan Poe period, which lasted for years and consisted chiefly in a volume called The Humorous Tales of E.A. Poe. These were mighty humorous, one about a young man who was too vain to wear his glasses and consequently married his grandmother by accident, another about a fine figure of a man who in his room removed wooden arms, wooden legs, hairpiece, artificial teeth, voice box, etc., etc., Another about the inmates of a lunatic asylum who take over the establishment and run it to suit themselves. This is an influence I would rather not think about. (laughs) I went to a progressive high school where one did not read if one did not wish to, and I did not wish to, except for the humorous tales, etc. In college, I read works of social science, so-called. The only thing that kept me from being a social scientist was the grace of God, and the fact that I couldn't remember this stuff but a few days after reading it. I didn't really start to read until I went to graduate school, and then I began to read and write at the same time. When I went to Iowa, I had never heard of Faulkner, Kafka, Joyce, much less read them. Then I began to read everything at once, so much so that I didn't have time, I suppose, to be influenced by any one writer. I read all the Catholic novelists, Mariak, Bernanos, Bloy, Green, Waugh, I read all the nuts like Juna Barnes and Dorothy Richardson and Virginia Woolf. Unfair to the dear lady, of course. 
I read the best Southern writers like Faulkner and the Tates, K.A. Porter, Eudora Welty, and Peter Taylor. Read the Russians, not Tolstoy so much, but Dostoevsky, Turgenev, Chekhov, and Gogol. I became a great admirer of Conrad and have read almost all his fiction. I've totally skipped people as Dreiser, Anderson, except a few stories, and Thomas Wolfe. I've learned something from Hawthorne, Flaubert, Balzac, and something from Kafka, though I have never been able to finish one of his novels. I've read almost all of Henry James, from a sense of high duty, (laughs) and because when I read James, I feel something is happening to me, in slow motion, but happening nonetheless. I admire Dr. Johnson's Lives of the Poets, but always the largest thing that looms up is the humorous tales of Edgar Allan Poe. (laughs) I am sure he wrote them all while drunk, too. (laughs) I have more to say about the figure of Christ as merely human, but this has gone on long enough and I will save it. Have you read Romano Gardini? In my opinion, there is nothing like his book, The Lord, anywhere. Certainly not in this country. I can lend it to you if you'd like to see it. <laughs> it's flannery. I have to agree with her on Romano Gardini's book, The Lord. Yeah. Everybody should read that book. Oh, yeah, he's great. And I've just been getting into him lately. Oh, um, yeah? But yeah, The Lord is something I've started. Yeah. Gordini, so, I just love. Oh, that's great. But I, yeah. I love, uh, the reason I picked this letter, um, there's a couple things. But just seeing her influences is really interesting to me. And mm. the people that she read as a young person. And I, I love, it's like the humorous tales of Edgar Allan Poe. Of course <laughs> that's a, an influence on her, even though she doesn't want it to be. Um, I oh, I love it. You know, she's talking about, you know, Pulling wooden arms, wooden legs, hairpiece, artificial. I mean, that is so Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, wasn't it Holga who had a wooden leg? Yeah. Yeah, all the things like that. I love it. And she's calling it slop with a capital S. Yeah. Oh, that's too fun. But the thing that jumped out at me most um, when I thought about, you know, this is just one of the things. I just love her. Another reason for the negative appearance. If you live today, you breathe in nihilism. And she's writing this in 1955. And she says, in or out of the church, it's the gas you breathe. And I I, I feel like I say that almost every podcast it comes up. It's something that is just on my mind like all the time is is this nihilism. It's like crap happens and then you die. It just seems to be the zeitgeist of the time, right? It's like I, I know so many people that hold that philosophy, and it's just like, it just permeates everything. Yeah, and you don't even realize it until you are talking to someone and realize you cannot be unguarded. Yeah. You're correcting yourself. Mm. And, yeah. um, and, and, of course, it goes on past nihilism to a lot of the progressive theories, social right. theories especially, think, yeah, that yeah. she wouldn't have. She, I love to think what she would have done with them. But it's, you know, a lot of that stuff, and you find yourself, as I said, you're you're doing self-correction as you talk. And I'm like, why can't I just talk like a normal person? This shouldn't <laughs> upset anyone, and probably wouldn't. Right. But I'm so conditioned, as she would say, by the air you breathe. And these days by the media and social media and all that. So, yeah, but it is true that what we have for correction is the Catholic church. Yeah. Which and is I what love that saying. she says that. Yeah. If I hadn't yeah. had the church to fight it with or to tell me the necessity of fighting it, 
Right. And that is something that I've had to learn too, you know, because, um, gosh, I was just having a discussion the other day with someone about the libertarian, you know, live and let live kind of a thing mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, you have this philosophy, you know, and as an American, you just want to, I want to be free to be Catholic, you know, and, and then the theory is, well, then, you know, you should make sure that other people are free to do whatever it is that they want to do. But there's comes a point that, I mean, the church tells you that there's some things that there is a necessity of fighting because as other things get a foothold, it's actually fighting against the church, you know? So it's like, in a way, there's some things that are creating a society where a Catholic church, or I mean, just a Catholic would have trouble living in that society. Um, not so much because of what are other people are doing, but because of things that they're forcing us to do. Um, you know, for example, I mean, if we think politically, there are things like, um, you know, we, we pass a health care law and in the health care law, it says you must provide for abortion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there's that famous, I don't even remember the name of the convent, but the convent was like, do we really have to provide this, you know, in our health insurance? Yeah. And I mean, how easy it is to just provide for this conscience, right? Provide that little, that loophole for people where we can live our faith um, without being told that we can't. Well, and um, I know this takes it a step further than what you're talking about, but also for anybody who's not Catholic listening to this, part of what we're talking about too is it's not just the church. It's the fact that the church is teaching us how to live according to God's laws. Yeah. This is the way God made us to live, <clears throat> to respect everyone's humanity. Mm-hmm. To um, in, in in terms of the law that you're talking about, um, you know, every person has the right to be born. Yeah, right. That sort of thing. So it's always it's how do you do this with kindness to everyone? And um, it's not kind to not let people practice their faith fully. And it's not kind to you know be a nanny and say, oh no, if you're going to be good, you have to believe this too. And that's that's happening a lot, and that's what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Um, another thing that's come up recently is there was a few laws in the United States, that, and I don't have any idea. There was one here in Utah where somebody put forth a law that said um, if somebody reveals something to a member of the clergy in a confession situation, that the clergy needs to come forward and and tell that to the authorities. And I was asked about that. I says, well, how do you feel about that as a Catholic? And I said, well, it's irrelevant because our priests are not going to do that. I mean, we're, (laughs) we're taught that they're, you know, they are taught, um, that under pain of death, um, that is a seal of the confessional. So it doesn't matter what your law says. Um, and you know, people don't understand that. (laughs) Were they shocked? They, yeah. And I was like, it's not even worth talking about because we can't. So, and this is a higher authority and, and, and that's the thing, you know, so, I mean, I live in a very religious community that is mostly LDS folks, uh, Mormons. Mm. Right. Um, and there's a, some understanding there cause I think it was a, an actually a Mormon thing that started it. I, uh, there was some situation with, uh, somebody had told, uh, a member of the Mormon clergy, something that ended up being a big deal. <clears throat> I don't know the details. I think it happened in Nevada. So um, that's why in this region that, you know, people are thinking about that. But the law didn't pass. And, of course, the Catholic Church um, here in this region said, you know, we need to write people and say, you know, this this law would not be good law. 
Um, but that's just an example. So as we move forward in modern society, we lose a lot of the words that we all used to know <laughs> and a lot of right. the common knowledge that we all used to have. And um, now you can, you can meet a person, even a religious person from another religion that um, doesn't understand what you're talking about, you know, when you say things like that. And, mm-hmm. and that's another example. So, of course, you have, to, you have to rise up and let your voice be known about laws like that. You know, it's like, oh, well, yeah. you're, you're making Catholicism illegal. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I like to <laughs> yeah. think we're a positive effect on society, although I know a, a lot of people would argue with me on that, including like Christopher Hitchens, right? So, yeah. Well. <clears throat> so, yeah. And then I love her line. I would be the stinkingest logical positivist you ever saw. <laughs> I love that too. Cause you know, logical positivism is like, um, only things that you can directly observe or logically prove yes. are meaningful, right? There is nothing outside of that. And, and I think the, the logical outworking of that, that we see a lot today <clears throat> is scientism, which is a word. It's not science, right? Catholics are not anti-science, but this scientism is like science rules. And if, if, if it's not science that is telling us something, then we don't believe it. And yeah. I think that there are a lot of people it. like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. God is not an object in the universe. And that's, you know, so we're not going to measure him. <laughs> and uh, that, that too is something that some people don't understand. Yeah. And it's, I don't know how things got so switched around because, you know, there's so many things that we can't weigh and measure and we know are true. You right. Know? Yeah. Love and sorrow and all the things, all the feelings and all the things, which, which <laughs> these days everybody's all about their feelings. <laughs> I don't understand. This is a real problem. They want it to be super logical. But if you're not being nice and kind and blah, 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 well, then people will feel bad, you know, and I'm just like, what's happening? Yes. I don't yeah. understand. Talk about not being able to be logical. Right. Um, anyway, that's I, possibly beside the point. But <laughs> It just occurred to me. I was like, no one's making any sense. Please stop it. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast um, not too long ago where they were talking about, you know, this idea as religious people, I think the person I was listening to was Orthodox. And he was talking about these levels of intelligence, right? Like we can see like a dog is pretty intelligent, right? And then you kind of march up a line up into a human. And you can tell that we share some things and there's a difference in degree of those things. Well, a religious person then can surmise that there's something above humans, right? That there's like maybe a level of intelligence higher. Maybe they have more senses. Maybe, you know, we can imagine this and, um, you know, God is everything, right? So it's like whatever we can imagine, um, it's just not even enough. Right. But we can imagine that there's something above us in the hierarchy. And, so science, like right now, seems to be telling us that we are the pinnacle <laughs> and there is nothing higher. And, and you're just like, well, how can that even be? So it's just, it's weird because it's like science or I guess you might call it modern philosophy has started putting limits on that religious people used to be accused of. And um, isn't yeah. that interesting? You know, so it's like the tables are turning on everything. Um you know, the stuff that they've accused religious people for, they are now doing. Well, and 
it's also these lead to things like the idea that the more we progress, the better we can be. Mm -hmm. And we can solve all our problems, we can do all these things, which is, you know, very American sounding to me. (laughs) Yes, we should do this. However, have they looked around? Everybody's doing all the same stuff they've always done. Yeah. Bad and good. Right. We've got Mm -hmm. a war between Russia and Ukraine. We've got, you know, for no good reason that I can tell, Um, at least certainly something I can't understand. It's never been adequately explained because no one understands it. They just know this is happening. Yeah. At least, you know, for base reasons. Um, and I mean, basic reasons. <laughs> mm-hmm. But so, um, you know, we turn on the news. There's horrible murders and things people have done. There's also, you know, really nice things people have done. But none of this seems to owe anything to the progress that we've made and are pushing for and everything. You know, and I'm not saying that medicine isn't better and that more people don't get fed and all the things, but these are just degrees. Mm. It's not really changing things. Right. And I think people who follow scientism feel like this is going to actually change things somehow. Indeed. Yeah. I don't think it is going to change things the way they think. I mean, I don't think so either. I'm not seeing evidence of it. Let's put it like that. Agreed. <laughs> well put. Well put. So, so Flannery's right. already got her finger on the, the or on the pulse of this situation. That's right. Fifty, what, seventy years ago now, almost seventy years. She's a smart cookie. She is. <laughs> yeah. You bet. All right. What's the next letter? Okay. I just want to make one little quote that I found that I found quite amusing that somebody. Oh, crud. I think I just lost my marker. Uh-oh. Okay, fine. It's, it's all fine. It's, don't panic, anyone. I'm sure with the help of science, I can get this back really quickly. Anyway, um, <laughs> this was from 1949, a letter that she sent to, I think, Carolyn Tate, who was a good friend of hers. And she said, I have just got back from two days in NYC. There's one advantage in it, because although you see several people you wish you didn't know, you see thousands you're glad you don't know. Done. That's it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> just like, so good. I know, she's just so funny. Yeah, she's great. Oh. <laughs> so, um, I'm just going to read a small section. I didn't even think about reading all, whole letters and stuff. Mm-hmm. But Whatever you like. I just went straight for what interested me. And you okay. had a lot of things in that letter. It was a good letter. Mm-hmm. Not criticizing. <laughs> okay. But I write the way I do because and only because I am a Catholic. I feel that if I were not a Catholic, I would have no reason to write, no reason to see, no reason ever to feel horrified, or even to enjoy anything. I am a born Catholic, went to Catholic schools in my early years, and have never left or wanted to leave the church. I have never had the sense that being a Catholic is a limit to the freedom of the writer, but just the reverse. Mrs. Tate told me that after she became a Catholic, she felt she could use her eyes and accept what she saw for the first time. She didn't have to make a new universe for each book, but could say, bleh, but could take the one she found. I feel myself that being a Catholic has saved me a couple of thousand years hmm. of learning to write. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and I I liked it because, mm. as I've mentioned before, this is my experience of becoming Catholic. I suddenly saw everything with a new focus, you know, and books and movies. I mean, the fact that we do this podcast is a testimony to that, but just the way people look at the world, 
the way they interpret things that are happening around them, I have a different take that I would never have had. And just the way she's, you know, seeing, focusing all her writing mm. that way, I, my whole life is like that. And I'm sure hers was too. Yeah. The way she talks. She's talking to this person about being a Catholic writer. So she's taking that um, point of view. But it's clear that she, everything was because you're Catholic. Yeah, I love that. It's it's such a it's a really nice to contemplate this idea that, you know, she says I would have no reason to write, no reason to see, no reason ever to feel horrified, or even to enjoy anything. You know, so it's like outside of this worldview, why why you know why are you horrified? <laughs> you know, it, yeah, yeah, it's like you know, you're horrified and you're naturally horrified at something, but why? You know, yeah. or to enjoy it. If you think about, I liked that yeah, bit. That bit too, right? Why do you, why enjoy that? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing that you know. There's so many that are unmoored by uh, this philosophy, right? Or this, <laughs> yeah. They, you know, well, and she says, you know, it left her feeling more free. Yeah, and that's and exactly so did, what it does. Yeah, and so did it to Mrs. Tate. You know, mm-hmm. and so it's that thing of just going. Everybody looks at Catholicism and they see all the old stereotypes, and they say, "Oh, you can't do this, you can't do that, you mm-hmm. can't experience these things." And it's like, but look what you get in exchange. Yeah, well, no question, and and even those things where you talk about the things that we can't do, if you look at that. It's a recipe for a good life. If, if, if Catholicism didn't exist and somebody gave you this list, they say, hey, if you could yeah. follow these Ten Commandments, you have a really good chance of having a really good life, you know? And so do the people around you. Exactly. You're not going to take their donkey. <laughs> That's you right. Know. That's right. So, you know, yeah, you're, you're coveting your neighbor's wife. Well, you know, you're causing all kinds of problems, yeah. um, you know, it's in your miserable. life and other people's lives and all this ripples, you know? They're good rules, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and, they, and and within them, yes. it's like it gives you freedom because, <clears throat> you know, here I am, I'm 55 years old, you know, and I've made errors. Um, but it's like if you're following the commandments, what it does is it gives you freedom, right? It gives you this freedom and detachment in a, in a certain way to, to certain things. But if you followed those, you don't have these problems, that so many people have, you know? And even when you fail to follow them, there are recipes in there for God forgives you. There is mercy. You can can make restitution for what you've done. I mean, and you feel better about it. It's not like you go around cringing in guilt your whole life. I mean, it's it's very freeing that way. I have to say, everybody feels like, oh, you're Catholic and you feel super guilty. These are people who never progressed beyond like the second grade when you're so immature, that's all you can feel because you don't know enough to feel better. It, it's the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly the opposite. It's like being given a clean sheet of paper. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You go to confession and you repair that relationship and you're like, okay, I'm going to do better. Um, you know, and clean, you're clean sheet of paper. Yeah, you are. I can attest to that from personal experience. Yeah, you know? me too. So, yeah. Very gradually, you mm-hmm. leave some stuff behind. You suddenly go, I haven't had to confess that for a while now. I mm-hmm. think, I think I've moved past it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's such a relief. Yeah. So I you just know? love that, this freedom that she's talking about. You know, this freedom within that, and and 
Yeah, it is. It is a stunning. It's just an incorrect thing for people to think that what we're experiencing is a lack of freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my goodness gracious! Look at the stories she wrote. Mm. Those are just nutty. They are okay yeah. in all kinds of ways. She had that freedom, and all of them. If you go back and listen to any of our old episodes, and I guess we should put links or list them or yeah, something. Yeah, I'll put links in the show in notes. That. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah um, those all take some of the most difficult topics and all of them have Christ in the middle of them, the way she writes about it Mm. and redemption, possible redemption and truth and freedom and all those things, because that's what is left up to the people Mm -hmm. in the stories. Yeah. So it's really, uh, of course they're very extreme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> She's taking the most, uh, you know, Edgar Allan Poe approach she can. <laughs> yes, for sure. For but sure. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I just looked at that and thought, yeah, the thing I like about that is you once you're Catholic and you're really trying to live it, you can't not be Catholic. And that was the thing about Mrs. Tate saying, you know, it's the what was it that she said? Um, she didn't have to make a new universe for each book, but could take the one she found. Hmm. because there's so much available in it. Oh, yeah. And I'm right now, since it's Lent, and I've been reading um, The Lord of the Rings 25 pages a day. That way I can get through it in 40 days. Hmm. And it's actually working, and it's a wonderful kind of a chunk of a meditation when you think about that and you're kind of using it the way you might use the Bible in terms of praying and talking to God about what am I finding here. And, of course, Tolkien, it's it's so profoundly Catholic because Tolkien was profoundly Catholic. It was just the worldview he had mm. that's the base underneath all this stuff. Yeah, and it's yeah. very enriching. Mm. Indeed. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. So that's my okay. bit. Very good. Okay. So now uh, we're on 10 March, 1956. She's writing this to Eileen Hall, who edited the book page of the bulletin. <laughs> the diocesan, the dia. Yeah, that. (laughs) (laughs) The paper for which the Flannery wrote many book reviews. I love it. So I'll just start in a second paragraph, but this is hard for me to cut anything out. Um, so she's talking about, yeah. Settle back, get yourself a glass of water. That's right, you betcha. So, um... Yeah, for th- this will this will make uh, perfect sense to people who read Flannery O'Connor stories. Yes, about scandalizing little ones. When I first began to write, I was much worried about this thing of scandalizing people, as I fancied that what I wrote was highly inflammatory. I was wrong. It wouldn't even have kept anybody awake. But anyway, thinking this was my problem, I talked to a priest about it. The first thing he said to me was, "You don't have to write for fifteen-year-old girls." Of course, the mind of a 15-year-old girl lurks in many a head that is 75, <laughs> and people are every day being scandalized not only by, ways, by what is scandalous of its nature, but by what is not. If a novelist wrote a book about Abraham passing his wife Sarah off as his sister, which he did, and allowing her to be taken over by those who wanted her for their lustful purposes, which he did to save his skin, how many Catholics would not be scandalized at the behavior of Abraham? The fact is that in order not to be scandalized, one has to have a whole view of things which not many of us have. This is a problem that has concerned Muriak very much, and he wrote a book about it called God and Mammon. 
His conclusion was that all the novelist could do was purify the source, his mind. A young man had written Moriak a letter saying that as a result of reading one of his novels, he had almost committed suicide. It almost paralyzed Moriak. At the same time, he was not responsible for the lack of maturity in the boy's mind, and there were doubtless other souls who were profiting from his books. When you write a novel, if you have been honest about it, and if your conscience is clear, then it seems to me that you have to leave the rest in God's hands. When the book leaves your hands, it belongs to God. He may use it to save a few souls or to try a few others, but I think that for a writer to worry about this is to take over God's business. I'm not one to pit myself against St. Paul, but when he said, let it not so much as be named among you, I presume he was talking about society and what goes on there and not about art. Art is not anything that goes on among people. Not the art of the novel, anyway. It's something that one experiences alone for the purpose of realizing in a fresh way, through the senses, the mystery of existence. Part of the mystery of existence is sin. When we think about the crucifixion, we miss the point of it if we don't think about sin. (laughs) About bad taste? I don't know, because taste is a relative matter. There are some who will find almost everything in bad taste, from spitting in the street to Christ's association with Mary Magdalene. Fiction is supposed to represent life, and the fiction writer has to use as many aspects of life as are necessary to make his total picture convincing. The fiction writer doesn't state, he shows, renders. It is the nature of fiction and it can't be helped. If you're writing about the vulgar, you may have to prove they're vulgar by showing them at it. The two worst (laughs) sins of bad taste in fiction are pornography and sentimentality. One is too much sex and the other too much sentiment. You have to have enough of either to prove your point, but no more. Of course, there are some fiction writers who feel they have to retire to the bathroom or the bed with every character every time he takes himself to either place. Unless such a trip is used to further the story, I feel it is in bad taste. In the second chapter of my novel, I have such a scene, but I felt it was vital to the meaning. I don't think you have to worry much about bad taste with a competent writer, because he uses everything for a reason. The reader may not always see the reason. But it's when sex or scurrility are used for their own sakes that they are in bad taste. What offends my taste in fiction is when right is held up as wrong, or wrong as right. Fiction is the concrete expression of mystery, mystery that is lived. Catholics believe that all creation is good, and that evil is the wrong use of good, and that without grace we use it wrong most of the time. It is almost impossible to write about supernatural grace in fiction. We almost have to approach it negatively. As to natural grace, we have to take that the way it comes, through nature. In any case, it operates surrounded by evil. I haven't so much been asked these questions as I have asked them of myself. People don't often even have the courtesy to ask them. They merely tell you where you have failed. I don't take the questions lightly, and my answers are certainly not complete, but they're the best I can do to date. Don't feel you have to review the Gordon book if you think it will cause the bulletin embarrassment or trouble. I will certainly understand. Most of your readers wouldn't like the malefactors if it were favorably reviewed by Pius XII. (laughs) Have you read Art and Scholasticism by Jacques Maritain? This, God and Mammon, is published by Sheed and Ward. Maybe that should be reviewed in the bulletin. About 20 years late, but better late than never. (laughs) 
I just love it. I mean, it just shows her personality. Yeah, so good. It does. So good. Yeah, and she's being perfectly reasonable, but at the same time, it's like, zing. Zing, right. To whoever does the bulletin. Absolutely. So, yeah, this whole thing. I mean, we talk about fiction all the time on this podcast. And it's so good. But I love what offends my taste in fiction is when right is held up as wrong or wrong is right. And uh, that reminded me of you. Honestly. Thank you. You're very welcome. Yep. Because I think uh, that's what drives a lot of your opinions um, in, in uh, movies and fiction. Mm-hmm. You, that, I mean, you, you find that, you're just like, negative. That is not right. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it. I think it's just awesome. Yeah. Oh, thank you. You're very welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. To and, even be compared to something Flannery O'Connor thought. Well, was, absolutely. Was I mean, that, that was you. That was you, yeah. Well, I do have it marked with two stars, and then I put a bracket around. Catholics believe that all creation is good and that evil is the wrong use of good, and that without grace, we use it wrong most of the time. Yes, yeah. And that's why, and then she goes on to say, that's why, you know, her, essentially she's saying that's why her books look like the way they do. Right. But uh, yeah, that's, I, but yes, I did have that Mm -hmm. when right is held up as wrong or wrong is right. Yeah. And she, she's talking about grace so much in her fiction. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's like sometimes, you know, when I read a Flannery O'Connor story, sometimes I read it and then I'm just like, I'm blown away by it, but I don't fully understand why. It's like something has something is here, and I don't quite understand it, right? And then it takes some delving to to dig it out. Yeah, and, it has um, to be teased out, right? And it's grace that she's writing about so much. Um, yeah, and right? who's accepting it? Who's yeah, and not? who's not accepting it? What who's gra- taking what's it? offering the grace? Yeah. yeah, it's so often grace refused. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I also really in this letter I loved. In a way, I didn't the first time I read it, which was many years ago, when she said that the priest said, you don't have to write for 15-year-old girls. Mm, Right. And then she says, the mind of a 15-year-old girl lurks in many a head that is 75. Mm -hmm. And people are every day being scandalized, not only by what is scandalous of its nature, but by what (laughs) is not. And I thought, does this not ring so true today? You know, you have trigger everything. Mm. Everyone's so sent. No one's got a thick skin, and they're all because they're all busy looking for these things. Yeah, they can't just read about something. They have to go. I mentioned a suicide, you know. <laughs> and I am, and I am sorry for people who've experienced something really tragic soon enough to have that trigger something. But I refuse to believe everybody's suddenly gotten so much more traumatized than they have been throughout you know, the earlier part of my lifetime. Right, yeah. You know, you just have to toughen up and get on with it. Yeah, it's amazing these trends existed and could be seen by her, you know, in 1956, you know, and it just has gotten so much farther down the road. Well, and I think also, though, it would be the things that the nice people would think. Oh, that's Mm. not nice. Yeah. You know, I could see that being a part of like 1950s society sort Mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah. Nice people don't talk about that. <laughs> I mean, think about a good man is hard to find. Good heavens. Right, right. That's shocking today, but back then it must have just been insane. <laughs> that was the first story I had ever read by her. I remember it oh. so clearly. Yeah. Because I was in Twin Falls, Idaho in a parking lot, and I had <laughs> an hour to wait for someone. So I had it on my phone, and I read it, and I was just like 
just completely blown away by it. Um, in a good way? In or a very good way. way? No, in, okay. in such a good way. It was exactly what I had said. It was just like, it was like, it hit me right in the spirituals. You know what I mean? It was just like, it was like something profound has occurred. That's great. And it's like, you know, I had, you got to read it again. I remember, you know, when I got home, I looked at it again and I started to look at what people thought about it because I was just like, I got to, it's, it's just, you know, it, it's interesting to hear people talk about that too, you know, um, uh, there's some booktube videos on that where people are, are looking at it and and um, you know trying to to work out what's going on there and um, yeah it's just it's fascinating what that story does to people. Unlike me, when I first read it, I went, "What just happened? <laughs> what's going on here? Yep. I don't care for this at all." Right. This is terrible. I was one of those 15 year old girls. Oh my like, gosh. I hadn't learned how to. Tease it out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Stunning story. If you're looking for a place to start with her, that's that's where oh, I would. No. Yeah. No, no, never. No. no. What would read you start? Revelation. With? Revelation. I read okay. Revelation. You got to le- ease people no, into this you, stuff. No, you hit them right in the spirituals. With the- <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly we have two different ways to go. <laughs> you bet. Mm. Oh, too fun. Too fun. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Get him right in the spirituals. Scott, you're terrible. Oh, I know. I'm okay. horrible. Horrible, horrible. Oh. All right. Oh, no, no. Read read Revelation. That's Revelation. The, okay. That's the last story she wrote. Good idea. Finished it in the hospital room and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Let's see here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, are we done? I'm sorry. Yeah, we just... are. Absolutely. Yep. So 9th of December, 1958 is what I have as our next one. Yes, I think I even have it marked. Let's see. Yay for me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is long, and it's all good. I can't oh. read this. It'll take too long. Oh, how could it be too long? Don't you think? It's too big, too Whatever long. you would like Pages. to read, let it rip. Oh, golly. All right, everybody. <laughs> I truly apologize. This is Scott. He's taking the bit between his teeth. I'm just going to do what he wants. <laughs> We know how rare that is, so, you know. <laughs> Congratulations mm. to Scott on uh, <laughs> this, this event. Too funny. Let's see here. Um, Cecil Dawkins seemed to have written her a lot of letters that made her explain a lot of things, mm-hmm. as far as I could see. And um, so I, I don't remember exactly where they came across each other, but I have four stars next to this letter. Nice. So I feel it was important. So I'm going to start a little ways in. Okay. And it says, glibness is the great danger in answering people's questions about religion. I won't answer yours because you can answer them as well yourself, but I will give you, for what it's worth, my own perspective on them. All your dissatisfaction with the church seems to me to come from an incomplete understanding of sin. This will perhaps surprise you because you are very conscious of the sins of Catholics. However, what you seem actually to demand is that the Church put the kingdom of heaven on earth right here now, that the Holy Ghost be translated at once into all flesh. The Holy Spirit very rarely shows himself on the surface of anything. You are asking that man return at once to the state God created him in. You are leaving out the terrible radical human pride that causes death. Christ was crucified on earth. And the church is crucified in time. And the church is crucified by all of us 
by her members most particularly because she is a church of sinners. Oh, I needed to mark that too. Okay. Christ never said that the church would be operated in a sinless or intelligent way, but that it would not teach error. This does not mean that each and every priest won't teach error, but that the whole church, speaking through the Pope, will not teach error in matters of faith. The church is founded on Peter, who denied Christ three times and couldn't walk on water by himself. You are expecting his successors to walk on the water. Mm. All human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and the change is painful. Priests resist it as well as others. To have the church be what you want it to be would require the continuous miraculous meddling of God in human affairs, whereas it is our dignity that we are allowed more or less to get on with through those graces that come through faith and the sacraments and which work through our human uh, nature. God has chosen to operate in this manner. We can't understand this, but we can't reject it without rejecting life. Human nature is so faulty that it can resist any amount of grace, and most of the time it does. The church does well to hold her own. (laughs) You're asking (laughs) that she show a prophet. When she shows a prophet, you have a saint, not necessarily a canonized one. I agree with you that you shouldn't have to go back centuries to find Catholic thought, and to be sure, you don't. But you are not going to find the highest principles of Catholicism exemplified on the surface of life, nor the highest Protestant principles either. It is easy for any child to pick out the faults in the sermon on his way home from church on every Sunday. It is impossible for him to find out the hidden love that makes a man, in spite of his intellectual limitations, his neuroticism, his own lack of lack of strength, give up his life to the service of God's people, however bumblingly he may go about it. Mm. It is what is invisible that God sees, and that the Christian must look for. Because he knows the consequences of sin, he knows how deep in you have to go to find love. We have our own responsibility for not being little ones too long, for not being scandalized. By being scandalized too long, you will scandalize others, and the guilt for that will belong to you. It is our business to try to change the external faults of the church, the vulgarity, the lack of scholarship, the lack of intellectual honesty, wherever we find them and however we can. In the past ten years, there has been a regular rash of Catholic self-criticism. It has generally come from high sources and been reviled by low. If the same knowledge would be shared or could be shared uniformly in the church, we would live in a miraculous world or belong to a monolithic organization. Just in the last few years have sisters teaching in parochial schools begun to get A.B. degrees. Doubtless the good soul who didn't know papal history would never believe it if she read anyway read it anyway, but there are plenty of Catholic sources, all with a nihil obstat, that she could pick it up in. The church in America is largely an immigrant church. Culturally, it is not on its feet, but it will get there. In the meantime, the culture of the whole church is ours, and it is, it is our business to see that it is disseminated throughout the church in America. You don't serve God by saying, the church is ineffective. I'll have none of it. Your pain is at its lack of effectiveness, is a sign of your nearness to God. We help overcome this lack of effectiveness simply by suffering on account of it. To expect too much is to have a sentimental view of life, and this is a softness that ends in bitterness. Charity is hard and endures. 
I don't want to discourage you from reading St. Thomas, but don't read him with the notion that he is going to clear anything up for you. This is done by study, but more by prayer. What you want, you have to be not above asking for. But homiletics isn't in my line, particularly with a broken rib. (laughs) Wow. So she just read him a lecture. so good. A lecture and a half. Yeah, that, I mean, gosh, it's so perfectly put. Yeah. (laughs) That's why I just, I I have marks all over that letter. Mm. But I loved the thing, because this is something we all have to remember ourselves, is that, you know, the... People who criticize, and this is including me and you, mm-hmm. that they're expecting the kingdom of her earth, of heaven on earth, right here, right now. And that's impossible. Yeah, so very right. I mean, we want yeah. things to be better, and we should try for things to be better. But I liked her point that so many flawed people, you know, from St. Peter, <laughs> who she talked about, right down to that priest where she was saying, you know, in spite of his intellectual limitations, his neuroticism, his own lack of strength, gives his life up to the service of God's people, however bumblingly he may go about it. And it makes me think of Therese of Lisieux, who always prayed for priests and wished she was a missionary. But when she went to Rome and actually lived near some priests, after a while, she's like, oh, we, we have to pray for them. <laughs> she's like, you know, they're trying, mm-hmm. but boy, are, they're very imperfect. Yes. They need all the help we can get. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm two two parts leapt out at me. Um, so I have marked Christ never said that the church would be operated in a sinless or intelligent way, but that it would <laughs> yeah. not teach error. Yeah. That's yeah. I mean, it's right. And then the other piece that I loved, your pain at its lack of effectiveness is a sign of your nearness to God. Right. I know, and it's surprising after this long letter that she writes that. Yeah. Yep. So it's like that you notice that it's not effective means you're kind of on the right path. You kind of know how it it should be, you know? (laughs) I was going to say, I don't feel like I'm near to God, like she's saying, but I do notice it's it's lack of effectiveness. Oh, that's great. Yeah. But it's because it's a human institution with a holy Mm. mission. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. And I mean, the, in, and she says it so well. I mean, I don't know why I'm trying to re-say it. Because, you know, of course, God's there in it. It's Christ's bride. But heavens to Betsy, we can take that and be bumbling with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. Beautiful. So, yeah. Anything else you'd like to say about that one? Um, I really feel like she said it. Yeah, she sure did. You bet. Yeah. So the next one is also to Cecil Dawkins on 23 December, 1959. Um, so I'll skip down some, I don't think this is too long, but it's, it's really good. (laughs) It's just like, oh yeah, I just read 20 pages of this thing. Okay. (laughs) Um, all right. I don't recall specifically that passage in Dom Aylred Graham's book. However, I read the whole thing and was not shocked by anything in it, nor did I find anything in it I hadn't heard before. It has an imprimatur. I gather from what you said that you don't understand the doc- that doctrine develops. Innovation seems a bad word to me, for it implies that this teaching was not implicit in the deposit of faith, but I would have to see the passage again to find out. 
In any case, you may not understand from this that Dom Ailred does not believe in the real presence or that a Catholic has a choice in this matter. The Mass is a memorial, but it is a memorial in which Christ is really, truly, and substantially present under the forms of bread and wine. From what you ask me, I see that you do not have any real imaginative vision of what the Church is. I don't take this to be your fault, Catholic education being what it is, but it is time you were learning what it is. Besides not knowing what the Church is in the large sense, you don't know what she teaches. For example, where on earth did you get the notion that the Immaculate Conception (laughs) means that the Virgin Mary was conceived sexlessly? You must be confusing this with the virgin birth, which is not the birth of the virgin, but Christ's birth. The Immaculate Conception means that Mary was preserved free from original sin. Original sin has nothing to do with sex. This is a spiritual doctrine. Her preservation from original sin was something God affected in her soul. It had nothing to do with the way she was conceived. The assumption means that after her physical death, her body was not allowed to remain on earth and corrupt, but was assumed, or like Christ's body after the resurrection, was caused by God to come into its transfigured and glorified state. Now, neither of these doctrines can be measured with a slide rule. You don't have to think of the assumption as the artist has to paint it, with the virgin rising on an invisible elevator into the clouds. (laughs) We don't know how the assumption or the immaculate conception were brought about, nor is this a matter for science in any way. Dogma is the guardian of mystery. The doctrines are spiritually significant in ways we cannot fathom. According to St. Thomas, prophetic vision is not a matter of seeing clearly, but of seeing what is distant, hidden. The church's vision is prophetic vision. It is always widening the view. The ordinary person does not have prophetic vision, but he can accept it on faith. St. Thomas also says that prophetic vision is a quality of the imagination that it does not have anything to do with the moral life of the prophet. It is the imaginative vision itself that endorses the morality. The church stands for and preserves always what is larger than human understanding. If you think of these doctrines in this sense, you will find them less arbitrary. I think what you want is not a church that can be liberalized, but one that can be naturalized. If there were a scientific explanation or even suggestion for these supernatural doctrines, then you could accept them. If you could fit them into what man can know by his own resources, you could accept them. If this were not religion but knowledge or even hypothesis, you could accept it. All around you today, you will find people accepting religion that has been rid of its religious elements. (laughs) This is what you are asking. If you can be a Catholic and find a natural explanation for mysteries we can never comprehend, you are asking if you can be a Catholic and substitute something for faith. The answer is no. What the Church has decided definitely on matters of faith and morals, all Catholics must accept. On what has not been decided definitely, you may follow what theologian seems most reasonable to you. On matters of policy, you may disagree, or on matters of opinion. You do not have to accept everything your particular pastor says unless it is something that is accepted by the whole Church, that is, defined or canon law. We are all bound by the Friday abstinence. This does not mean that the sin is in eating meat, but that the sin is in refusing the penance. The sin is in disobedience to Christ who speaks to us through the church. The same with missing Mass on Sunday. Catholicism is full of such inconveniences, and you will not accept these until you have that larger imaginative view of what the church is, or until you are more alive to spiritual reality 
and how it affects us in the flesh. The church has always been mindful of the relation between spirit and flesh. This has shown up in her definitions of the double nature of Christ, as well in her care for what may seem to us to have nothing to do with religion, such as contraception. The church is all of a piece. Her prohibition against the frustration of the marriage act has its true center perhaps in the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. This again is a spiritual doctrine and beyond our comprehension. The church doesn't say what this body will look like, but the doctrine proclaims the value of what is least about us, our flesh. We are told that it will be transfigured in Christ, that what is human will flower when it is united with the Spirit. The Catholic can't think of birth control in relation to expediency, but in relation to the nature of man under God. He has to find another solution to the population problem. Not long ago, a lady wrote a letter to Time and said the reason the Puerto Ricans were causing so much trouble in New York was on account of the church's stance on birth control. This is a typical, this is a typical liberal view, but the church is more liberal still. Your thinking about the church is from the standpoint of a kind of ethical sociology. You judge it by your own dimensions, want it to conform to what you can know and see, and above all, you want it to let you alone in your personal life. Also, you judge it strictly by its human element, by unimaginative and half-dead Catholics who would be startled to know the nature of what they defend by formula. The miracle is that the church's doctrine is kept pure both by and from such people. Nature is not prodigal of genius, and the church <laughs> makes do with what nature gives her. At the age of 11, you encounter some old priest who calls you a heretic for inquiring about evolution. At the same time, Pierre Teilhard de Jardin, SJ, is in China discovering Peking Man. I'm going to send you some books along that may clear up one thing or another. This is one part apostolic zeal and two parts horror at some of your misconceptions about what is taught. I probably have a lot of misconceptions myself, and what I say to you is subject to correction by anybody more in command of the subject than I am. I mean by any competent Catholic theologian. I am no theologian, but all this is vital to me, and I feel it's vital to you. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so I read that long thing, but I, I, I love this is the best explanation of those things, you know, contraception and, um, oh, yeah. and, uh, birth control. I mean, well, it's the same thing. Sorry. <clears throat> well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I, I just think, you know, how she approached that is something that I just need to internalize myself. Um, you know, when I explain it to people, because it, it, it's super interesting, you know, so the, so the idea that, you know, you want the church to be naturalized, so you want it to have all these scientific explanations. Um, you know, was it from you that I heard that, that someone said, you know, well, you have this loaves and the fishes miracle, but really what was amazing oh is that they gosh, shared yes. it. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. yeah. It's so like, it's like, okay, well, there's uh, your scientific explanation, you know, so there can't be a miracle or, you know. Yeah, the other one is that when the, at Cana, when the stewards or the servants put the water into the jug, uh -huh. into the big pots, uh, that it had had wine already, which leached uh, into the water. Of course. And so it just know. seemed, and I was like, but they said it was the very best wine. That wouldn't be yeah. what that was. Oh, but see, everybody's yeah. always trying to come up with some 
dumb explanation. Right, but why? You know, why? Yeah, Who, well, who's I, who's doing that? You know. Yes, I. I cannot answer you on that. <laughs> but there is, you know, it's like, you. yeah, I think what you want is the, is the church to be naturalized, you know, if also, there was, yeah. I, yeah, I love the point that she made where she said, you just wanted to leave you alone. Mm. Yeah, personally, you, you right? You wanted to conform you to what you know life. and see, yeah. and you want to be left alone in your personal life, and... I just thought that's so perfect. And so this goes back to another quote of hers that's extremely famous and it comes from her letters where she says, what people don't realize is how much religion costs. Mm. They think faith is a big electric bank blanket when, of course, it is the cross. Yes, It is much mm. harder to believe than not to believe. If you feel you can't believe, you must at least do this. Keep an open mind. Yeah. Keep it open toward faith. Keep wanting it. Keep asking for it. And leave the rest to God. Hmm. Love that. Which is essentially what happened to me when I kept going, is, how does anybody know God's there? <laughs> but you yeah. have to just, you know, and you have to just not have a preconception about it. And, hmm. of course, it's hard to do. Yeah, sometimes, you know, in, in, when you're talking to an atheist, they'll, they'll, they will say that, you know, it, it must be comforting for you to believe. You know, and and it's yeah. just like that's what I was taught. Well, they're hmm. so weak; they need to lean on this. Exactly, exactly. Then I was, became Catholic and went. Yeah. This is not easy, <laughs> and weak people. Well, yeah, we we need to lean on something. But man, do you know what we're trying to do here? <laughs> yeah, I got I like got Jesus. that on a I got that on a YouTube thread one time, where I was commenting <laughs> on something. And yeah, he just said, "Yeah, it must be, it must be just really nice. You know, you must need it." So condescending. Yeah, yeah incredibly. Weak thing yeah. You. Yep. Yeah. What did you say? I don't even recall. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that I engaged him. You know, I, I said something, but yeah, I, I don't recall what my answer was. Yeah, it's but. it's that thing of you really, really admire someone. You really want to be just like them, just like a little kid with their hero. Mm. And you try and try and try and try and try and try. Because that's the most perfect you could be. Who wouldn't mm. want to be that? Yeah, yeah. And he wants you to be that way, too, because you could be so happy that way. Mm. That's not easy. Yeah, it's not easy. Even with all the help and the graces in the world, it's <laughs> just... And I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm I'm not pitying myself or a victim. It's just it's what she says. It's the yeah. cross. <laughs> Sometimes Absolutely. you get the electric blanket when you really, really need it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times, that's not the point. Yeah. I love in her letters, too, that she's always sending books around. Yeah. She's always <laughs> yeah. saying, yeah, I'm going to send you this book. And, you know, know, just return it when you can, you know. So it's like off it goes in the mail. Love yeah. that. Love that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that, too. Yeah. Yeah. This was really good. And also, it shows you how nothing has really changed. Right. It, it absolutely hasn't. People still think the way they've always thought. In, in, because it's a modern time. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, love it. All right. So November 25th, 1960 is where we come next. I feel like everybody's going to be very happy. I can hear the applause now. <laughs> it's already a short letter, and I'm just going to read a short bit of it. All right. Because <laughs> this is mm -hmm. the part that I thought mattered. Mm -hmm. So um, it's talking about somebody's writing. And... She says, the human comes before art. You do not write the best you can for the sake of art, but for the sake of returning your talent increased to the invisible God to use or not use as he sees fit. 
Resignation to the will of God does not mean that you stop resisting evil or obstacles. It means that you leave the outcome out of your personal considerations. This is the most concern, well, it is the most concern coupled with the least concern. Hmm. That's it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, and it's that whole idea of are you making something beautiful for God, essentially? Yeah. Are you giving it yeah. your all? Are you doing the best you can? It's like Leaf by Niggle. Hmm. Yep. He paints those, I'm sorry to just make this so Tolkien-centric, <laughs> but, you know, it's you you paint the leaves that are something special, and you offer those to God. God uses them or doesn't use them, but that's not the point. You have expressed yourself fully, and I my experience is, in expressing myself fully like that, I then grow closer to God because I am uh, putting that part of myself into what I'm doing. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. And it gets right. kind of given back. Yeah, and I like the uh, the emphasis. It's like the correct order of things. Yeah. You know, do not write the best you can for the sake of art, but for the sake of returning your talent increased to the invisible God. And then, in turn, he will use it or not use it as he sees fit. Yeah, and it's like, and resignation to God's will doesn't mean you stop doing your own part. Mm -hmm. You're still doing your own part, yeah. but the outcome is nothing that you can control. Hmm. You just have to let that part go. Yeah. And that's the way about it. You know, she's talking about writing, but of course that's about anything we do. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah, trying to remember. Any, any work we do, yeah. Yeah, and I was reading something that was in the introduction of Paul Johnson's book, The Creators, mm -hmm. and he was talking about the fact that we create because we are made in the image of the Creator. So, of course, that's what we do, and it absorbs us, and it's the thing we love the most. And um, But then he said, he was talking about, and you can do this in any part of your life. And his one of his examples was a street sweeper who'd come who was in London but had lived somewhere else, you know, like grown up in Persia or, you know, Iran or wherever. And um he said, So and now I'm gonna really probably get it wrong, but he's like, So how do you feel about your street sweeping? And he says, Ah, oh, it's wonderful, you know. By the end of the day, my street is the cleanest, you know, whatever. It's like he he understands his creativity is being used there. He cares about what he's doing. He's offering that to God, whether it gets used or not. Hmm. Yeah, and that's what, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Martin Luther King Jr. told a janitor, mm. be the best janitor you can be. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's just, yeah. here you are, you were put here, you're a janitor. Mm -hmm. Janitor the hell out of it. <laughs> you bet. Yeah. That's a famous Star Trek story that he told Nichelle Nichols to stay on that bridge. Yeah. Be the best Uhura you can be. <laughs> right. He says, you know? do you know what kind of an example it is just to see you on that show? Because she's like, yeah. oh, they're not writing any plots about me. <laughs> I just answered the thing. Half the time I'm not there. And he's like, no, just mm -hmm. take it. Yeah. Yeah. Shoot. Good she advice. William Shatner had the first interracial kiss on TV thanks mm -hmm. to that show. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Beautiful. So there's so much in here. So there's, yeah, th there's 600 pages of this kind of stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. So good. Yeah. 
Yep. So let me start reading at page one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can make that your new weekly podcast. There you and go. I will just tune in. <laughs> Definitely. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this. Um, oh, I no, sure I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't looked at this in so long. It was really a pleasure to revisit mm-hmm. these letters. I have to admit, I didn't reread the whole thing. I yeah. read some of. I read a big chunk of it, and then I just went through and started. Picking out mm-hmm. letters, I, I ran out of time. Yeah, yeah. This so. is a book to be read slowly anyway. Mm-hmm. Like you said, a couple at a time and, you know, just over time. Something to put on yeah. your nightstand or whatever. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's really, and I read, I think that's how I read it. I think it took me like a year or two when I first read it. Mm. I just had it on my nightstand and, you know, made kind of soothing reading. Yeah. yeah. But it was always so good. Mm-hmm. Way to go, Flannery. Yep. Can't wait to meet you someday. <laughs> Fingers you crossed. Bet. You bet. Love it. Love it. Love it. Yeah. All right. Okay, so what's up next for us? Hmm. Oh yeah. Captain Phillips. <laughs> Movie called Captain <laughs> the Phillips. Opposite. Yes. Henry <laughs> O'Connor's wise Catholic information. <laughs> you bet. You bet. Although really not, now that I think uh-huh. about it. Yeah. You gotta you got a stand-up guy. You got a mm-hmm. uh, a righteous man. I think mm-hmm. you would say. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. It's very really good. good. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yep. Looking forward to talking about it. Yeah. So excellent. Oh, that All is great. Right. Okay. Well, okay. thanks for listening, everyone. Hope yes, you had as much fun as you. we did, <laughs> or I did. How could they not? <laughs> Absolutely. Pages and pages of Flannery O'Connor's Catholic advice. Exactly. Well, actually, let's face it, it was so good. Yes, really great stuff. They had to all love it. Yep. Oh, or they awesome. tuned out, so they're not even listening to this, so it doesn't matter. Everybody's left, loved it. <laughs> oh, too good. All right. We nailed another one, Scott. Nailed it. Yes. Nailed it. Yeah, I love it. All right. Well, we'll oh, see you in a couple weeks, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, after everybody's gotten to watch that big adventure, Captain That's Phillips. right. You bet. All right. Yeah. Bye-bye, yeah, all. Bye-bye. <laughs>